Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the similarities between covering the corona crisis and covering the climate crisis. We've all been struck over the last week or so, especially as Earth Day has arrived, over a lot of the attention that the climate crisis has received and on how that crisis has a lot of similarities with what we're living through in this pandemic having to do with the fact that it was first slow moving and then fast, having to do with with the fact that it depends on data and science to understand, and even having to do with some of the actions that individuals have to take to sort of protect themselves. We'll get into that in a few minutes, but first I'm going to start with Tammy Kim, who has written about both the coronavirus and the climate crisis. Welcome, Tammy. Thanks so much, Kyle. Good to have you. Tammy's written for the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, and the piece, pieces that she's most proud of, of course, for the Columbia. <laughs> of course. Review. So you've written, you wrote a terrific collection of text messages between you and your mother about the coronavirus and how she was sort of responding to it. You've written about the climate crisis. Where do you see the overlap between these two sort of massive stories? Sure, for me focused on public systems and labor issues. Um, I think certainly like the the infrastructural questions um, are are striking all the overlaps there about the inadequacy of you know both sort of government and public facing systems um, in our country to respond to both of the crises. And this question of disproportionality, um, you know, the ways in which race and poverty are playing out in the pandemic um, are even more shocking, I think, than anyone could have seen, um, you know, when you see the stats of deaths in, for instance, Michigan, Illinois, Louisiana, I mean, the numbers are incredible that you could have a 14% Black population, but have Black deaths be 40, 50%. So I'm thinking a lot about about those sorts of things. Um, You know, for instance, I I was reporting um, about unemployment, and you see that kind of the same populations that are affected by the early stages of unemployment and the COVID crisis, and are, they're also lacking health care. They're also the communities that are in areas that are affected by environmental justice harms. So these are sort of things that we all know, but they're just so clear right now, and we need to adjust our reporting to look at kind of the systemic underpinnings of why this is the case. You did a piece for The Times about the sort of job effects of the coronavirus and the people who, to your point, the people who are in the sort of front lines of getting the most economic harm as a result. You know, it it struck me that that, the storyline about the disproportionate effect on people of color and economically disadvantaged people from the coronavirus Mm -hmm. took a long time to catch hold in in media, probably longer than it should have. Do you agree with that? And do you have any sense of why that was the case? I do. I think it it was quite striking. One of the stories that I think went sort of viral the other day was the story about how, oh, look, the, you know, the great majority of essential workers are women of color. Well, of course, we knew that. I mean, if anyone who sort of reports on low-wage labor issues or the labor market in general knows about stratification, knows about the concentration of women, immigrants, um, you know, Black people in these jobs. Um, so why did why did it take us so long to get to that point? I mean, I think one thing is a lot of what we do as journalists is sort of to look at 
you know, this is the system that exists and this is what's not working well within that system. Well, I think actually what the coronavirus and the climate crisis point us to is not just what are the sort of things that need to be tweaked to make things work better, but what is systematically going on? What is the design of these programs? Um, How do they exclude people um, sort of by design? Um, And I think that's kind of what this is pointing us to. And do you think that the coverage so far of the climate crisis has made this point strongly enough that that these are the people who are going to get hurt disproportionately by that crisis too or is that is it is it ramping up just as it took a while for it to ramp up when it came to covering the health crisis my view is that those are still the minority of the stories that are told about the climate crisis um, i think you know, for obvious reasons, because of who we assume newsreaders to be and perhaps who newsreaders are. Um, we have a lot of climate stories that sort of address, you know, quote unquote, middle class concerns or sort of individualistic, well, um, you know, you can do this and that to sort of help around the edges type stories, as opposed to the stories of climate refugees. I mean, you know, for instance, of course, we've all been thinking about um, anyone who's who's kind of thinking about like refugee flows is thinking about what is the coronavirus going to look like in refugee camps? Well, of course, a lot of those refugees are also climate refugees. These massive intersections between, you know, conflict and climate and now disease. Um, so hopefully that'll sort of all now move us to more sort of systemic thinking and thinking about the most vulnerable. But I don't think that's the default in most newsrooms. So I'm going to turn now to Mark Hertzgard, who's the executive director of Covering Climate Now, which is a collaboration that Mark and I and CJR and the nation launched a year ago to promote more and better climate coverage. Mark can talk more about Covering Climate Now and its week of coverage this week in a second. But Mark, you've thought a lot about this, the, the overlap between the coronavirus story and the climate story. Can you expand on what Tammy was saying? I, I think that anytime that there is a crisis, it reveals a society, or for that matter, a person, uh, more starkly than normal circumstances do. So the racism that <clears throat> infects the United States of America is on starker display. The inequality that affects the United States is on starker display. Uh, And you see that during the coronavirus, but you also have always seen that in the climate crisis. I've spent a lot of my career reporting overseas and repeatedly trying to make the point that that Tammy did uh, about how um, these crises hit the poor and people of color uh, first and worst. They're the ones who suffer. And the, the great injustice of that is that in the case of climate change in particular, we're talking about people in Africa, Asia, etc. Some of the poorest people in the world, they are responsible for all but zero greenhouse gas emissions. They did not cause this problem, and yet it is raining down on their heads. And looking to how we as journalists cover this, I think a number of the lessons for us are the same as they are for the society in general between these two crises. In both cases, I find the similarities eerie that uh, you've got to First of all, you have to respect science. If you don't respect science, you're lost. If you deny science, you're really in trouble. Second, you have got to intervene early and forcefully to flatten the curve. That is as true of the uh, greenhouse, gas emissions, greenhouse gas emissions driving climate change as it is true of the infection rate in the coronavirus crisis. And third, and very important, you must prepare in advance for the impacts that cannot be avoided. You've got to be ready 
with more hospital beds, with ventilators, et cetera, once the virus is loose. And likewise, with climate change, we know already that we're locked into uh, increasing storms, increasing heat waves, increasing bushfires around the world, uh, sea level rise. We've got to be preparing in advance for those things because what you learn is that you can either spend pennies in advance to prepare or you can spend trillions of dollars cleaning up afterwards and with the added burden of a lot more human suffering along the way. So, Mark, you and, and even I are, are closer to this climate uh, coverage issue than a lot of other people. But it does seem to me that um, journalists sort of of all stripes are, are drawing a line between between the health crisis and the climate crisis. And there th- that there's a lot of climate coverage happening now amidst this pandemic because people see that these two things are related. Right. I think there's some, but I think actually it's because you and I are closer to it. I think we're noticing it more. If you look at the average newscast or the average front page or home page, um, the climate stories are still relatively marginal. I think the people on the beat, on the climate beat, are doing a, a heroic job of connecting the climate crisis to the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And that's partly because of the realities of the situation, but let's be honest, it's also because of newsroom realities, because of the fact that editors and producers at this point really want stories on COVID-19. And so if you're a climate reporter, you're gonna find a way to, to make that connection. Luckily in our case, uh, as climate journalists, the connection is substantively valid. But I think that nevertheless, and we're very proud that this week covering climate now has, has all of our 400 plus partners are, are doing more coverage. But I think still for the media as a whole, um, that we have a long ways to go. So talk about this collaboration and sort of how it works and how it sort of evolved. Sure. Well, covering climate now is now a a global journalistic collaboration of over 400 newsrooms around the world with a a combined audience approaching 2 billion people. And we have some of the biggest names in news around the world, but also some of the smallest. And we like it that way. I think it's very good to have a a collaboration that brings together uh, big shots like CBS News and NBC News, which just joined us this week, and the Reuters uh, news agency and Agence France Press news agency and Bloomberg, all the big guys, um, but also the, the, the smaller nonprofit one or two person newsrooms that often tend to be serving very uh, localized uh, communities. So it's a collaboration of all those people, all those newsrooms, and it's essentially just designed to uh, do more and better coverage of the climate story, to help one another do that. We share content as we are during this Earth Day week. We're doing a week of coverage around climate solutions and some of the leading uh, partners in the collaboration, like The Nation, like uh, CJR, like The Guardian, like Reuters, CBS, have made their uh, climate coverage available free of charge to fellow partners within the Covering Climate Now collaboration to rebroadcast and republish. We don't take paywalls down to the general public, but among ourselves, we share content. And that allows everyone, even the the very smallest newsrooms, uh, to really have a a full week of very high quality climate content that they give their audiences. 
So, Tammy, you, you are on the supply end of the journalism food chain. <laughs> you're, pitching, you're pitching ideas to people. You're talking about, like, here's what you think should be people should be commissioning and, and reading. What is your sense from talking to editors about this question of interest in any story right now that's not squarely a COVID story? I think it's basically impossible, <laughs> to be honest, because I think um, people are, are completely overwhelmed. And of course, we've seen so much, um, so many layoffs, so much shrinkage during this period, too, in many newsrooms. Um, a lot of our colleagues have lost work. So it seems to me that all of the editors I'm in touch with are very much just focused on what's right under their nose, which are COVID stories. Now, of course, we're all orienting our pitches to to be COVID stories, because in a sense, um, you know, as, as you and Mark were saying, this is a crisis that touches all parts of life. And so for the most part, you know, your story will probably have some sort of COVID element, you know, outside of like a film review or, you know, an album review or something like that. But I mean, you you wrote this terrific piece for the, the CGR has a new print issue out about the climate crisis. And you wrote a piece about the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which a lot of people know is the kind of doomsday clock people in which, you know, they look at sort of the threat of nuclear annihilation. But they, your piece was about how they, they had started adding, you know, environmental Armageddon to their calculus and how they sort of think about that. And they apply the same kind of metaphor, you know, how many minutes to midnight. Mm-hmm. And the reason I thought that was so interesting, even as it relates to this pandemic discussion, is it does sort of show how the climate story can be bridged to other stories and how they how it can relate in this case to nuclear Armageddon. But it's the same sort of principle. You know, how I mean, the cli- mm-hmm. how, how, how do you sort of view the climate crisis as a kind of metaphor as it relates to other sort of existential crises that we face? Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about um, the timing of publication of that, of course, is it you know, sort of hit right when COVID um, was spreading throughout the United States. And the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists also does, you know, publish quite a bit about biological warfare and disease, but that was sort of underemphasized in the story because we were making a different point. But yes, all of this stuff is is deeply interrelated. Um, do, you know they, what, do they do yeah. a kind of like uh, uh, a similar metaphorical clock on on pandemics? Yeah, well, the way that they've been doing their clock analysis is it's done in person by a board of scientists and policymakers every year. They sort of look, give presentations to each other and look at what all of the different threats to humanity are. And those include, you know, they are under different columns, the nuclear threat, the climate threat, sort of biowarfare threat, you know, all of it's sort of taken together. And then um, in the doomsday clock statement that they publish, um, when they make the clock announcement, they list out their reasoning for that year. And so um, we can't, we don't know for sure, you know, which factors are weighing more than others in, in a given year outside of that sort of statement. But um, yeah, certainly they're taking all that into account and they try to ensure that they have, for instance, like a biological warfare person on their board, a climate yeah. person on their board. So I think that that's quite interesting. And, you know, it does speak in a sort of prophetic way to what climate coverage might look like in in all of our magazines and newspapers. Um, This is an issue that is an existential threat. This is an issue that is interrelated to so many other things that affect our daily lives. Before I let you go, one, do you, this whole question of how people are only interested in coronavirus at the moment is interesting to me. So 
that's your that's what you're spending 100 percent of your time on now for things that I need to get paid for fresh yes <laughs> I would okay. say um that's certainly where the interest is um again that does you know touch so many different subject areas that those stories still can look quite different like everything from a personal essay to you know a sort of hard news thing to an explainer but in yeah. some you know it definitely has to have a coronavirus connection at this point yeah Mark, does that surprise you or, or demoralize you or you sort of thought that's what it would be as, as it relates to the interest in stories other than square on coronavirus stories right now? No, as I said earlier, I think that's just a reality <clears throat> within newsrooms. And I'm talking to a lot of our colleagues within the, uh, you know, the 400 newsrooms that are part of covering climate now. But uh, and sure, you know, everything is uh COVID-19. And it's interesting, I think, that, that uh, newsrooms are doing that. And in a way, it's, it's quite reassuring about the civic role of journalism, because mm-hmm. I think uh, journalists are responding to where the public really is. I mean, just look in your own life. The first thing out of pretty much every person when you're in a conversation with them relates to the virus. So I get it. You know, that's, that's going to be there. But I also take... Um, encouragement from the fact, and you mentioned this, Kyle, when we did the, uh, when Covering Climate Now did the talking shop session last week with journalists talking about how do we cover COVID-19 or how do we cover the climate story while the pandemic is going on? And a very big news organization whose name I won't use, but uh, told you, I think, Kyle, that um, the one story that they are still seeing audience interest in besides the uh, COVID-19 story is the climate story. And so I think that Mm -hmm points to the fact that the public out there, there has been a real sea change in public opinion, not just in the United States, by the way, but especially in the United States uh, and among younger people, it's trans ideological. If you're under the age of 40, you care about climate change. You want the political class to respond to it. You want the the media class to write and and broadcast about it. So I think that's what we have to, to bear in mind that and, and always remember that, that we work for the public. We get paid by our employers, but we work for the public in the media. And that's where we have to keep our focus. And we have to remember, therefore, that yes, as awful as the coronavirus crisis is, it is taking place against a backdrop of an even worse crisis, the climate crisis that is gathering speed as we uh, speak here. And we've got to be able to keep our eyes on both balls. And and one last point, we, we also have to talk about solutions. When it is so grim, you know, with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Armageddon stuff, that's all real. The scientists are not making that stuff up. But we have to be able to talk to the public and frankly, the policymakers as well and say, yes, but, yes, but there are solutions. And we know they work. We know they're cost effective. And so the big story, I think, coming out of this uh, into the months of the summer is going to be what kind of a stimulus program is there going to be in the United States? We know there's going to be a stimulus program to deal with the uh, economic fallout of the pandemic. Is it going to be a green stimulus program that deals with this other crisis and propels us forward away from the climate crisis? Or is it going to be a brown stimulus that drags us back into the past? Mm-hmm. Mark and Tammy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. You can read Tammy's piece about the Atomic Scientist Bulletin um, and a lot of other work in the newest issue of CJR on the climate crisis, which is out now. 
and then follow everything else we do at CGR.org and the Media Today newsletter. Also, go to CoveringClimateNow.org to find out all about how they're doing, what they're doing, the state of the coverage week, and a lot else. Thank you all for joining us. See you next week.